Today on the 300th episode of Something You Should Know. I know, it's a big deal. A lot of young women are doing something weird with their voice and it's no good for anyone. Then the universal problem of derailing our own best effort. It's called self-sabotage. Well, self-sabotage is when we get in our own way despite our best intentions. So perhaps we've made a goal for ourselves. We say that it's really important to us and yet we end up hindering our own progress, and sometimes it makes people really confused. Plus, why you need to go take a dip in the ocean as soon as possible, and a fascinating look at how the universe really works. The great miracle, as Einstein put it, is that the universe is ordered. It's not just a heap of chaos. Underneath all the tumult of the planet Earth are simple laws, a relatively small number of them. All this today on the 300th episode of Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome to a momentous event. Episode 300 of Something You Should Know. We started this podcast about three years ago, and my partner Ken Williams and I really tried to create a podcast that we really thought people could sink their teeth into and enjoy and tell their friends and be different than so many of the other podcasts. We started with high hopes, but you never know, and uh, it has exceeded our expectations. And it has done that precisely because of you and other people like you who listen, share it with their friends, And it has been a great ride, and I hope will continue for a long, long time. Thank you. We start today with something called vocal fry. More and more adolescent girls and young women speak with this thing called vocal fry. It's been a gradual trend, and a lot of girls don't realize that this speech pattern can permanently damage their vocal cords. Vocal fry is best described as the voice descending into the lower register as the speaker completes the sentence. Listen to Kim Kardashian. She does it all the time. In fact, I I think all the Kardashians have vocal fry. Some experts consider vocal fry vocal abuse and even a self-inflicted disorder. Vocal fry is somewhat of an epidemic. It starts typically in middle and high school with about two-thirds of college-age women speaking it. Once in the workforce, women may want to consider dropping their vocal fry. Duke University did a study and found that hiring managers were less likely to hire applicants speaking fry, as they were perceived as less trustworthy and competent, and in some cases, just downright annoying. Vocal fry is a habit that can, uh, can fry your vocal cords, It causes muscle strain, swelling, and potentially even lesions and other damage. And that is something you should know. Has this ever happened to you? You have a big project, and there's a deadline. And instead of working on the project as the deadline approaches, you waste a bunch of time on social media or watching television, so you don't have enough time to really do the project well. Or, for example, you're in a great relationship, but maybe you get a little flirtatious with someone at the office and the partner finds out and now there is a big problem. It's called self-sabotage, and we all do it to some degree. 
we torpedo our own best efforts for seemingly no apparent reason. And the consequences can range from minor to devastating. Here to talk about why we do it and how to knock it off is Dr. Judy Ho. Judy is a triple board certified and licensed clinical and forensic psychologist, and she's author of the book, Stop Self-Sabotage. Hi, Judy. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, Mike. So good to be here. Thank you for having me on. You bet. So define self-sabotage for me. What is it you're talking about? Well, self-sabotage simply defined is when we get in our own way despite our best intentions. So perhaps we've made a goal for ourselves. We say that it's really important to us, and yet we end up hindering our own progress. And sometimes it's inexplicable, and it makes people really confused. Yeah, and everybody's done it, right? Everybody's done it. And truly, I think it's a universal phenomenon that is rooted in biology and evolution. And so I think all of us, even the best of us, are prone to this from time to time. So what is the root of that? What is the biological root of that? So the biological root of self-sabotage really has to do with the two primary drives of all human beings. And the two primary drives are, in order to survive as a species and as individuals, we need to avoid threat. And at the same time, we need to attain rewards so that we can keep moving forward. And the self-sabotage switch gets turned on when, over a course of different experiences or personality traits or ways that we go about life, we end up prioritizing avoiding threat more so than attaining reward. And in our current day, the threat is not so much a saber-toothed tiger, but the threat is being rejected for a date, being turned down for a job, embarrassing yourself in public when you're speaking. And so even emotional threats feel the same way to our bodies as physical threats. When I think of self-sabotage, I think of a student, for example, who has a really important test to take and who doesn't study and waits till the last minute and doesn't study enough and then and gets a lousy grade on the test and wonder, well, well why would you do that? Absolutely. Procrastination is one of the most vivid examples, I think, of self-sabotage. And I think people tell themselves different things. They might say, well, I need all of that energy and stress so that in the end I can perform the best to my ability. And obviously people don't perform to the best of their ability when they're crunched for time like that, especially as projects and exams get more complicated. Do you think that when people are doing this, when they're sabotaging their own best efforts, they know it or they only see it later? Well, I think it's a mixture. So some people know it in the moment, and they're doing it anyway, so they're feeling really bad about themselves as they're doing it. And other people don't see it until later. And in fact, some people won't see it until days later, maybe. And all of a sudden, they'll realize, whoa, why did I do that? And I think the problem for most people, whether you realize it in the moment and do it anyway, or realize it a little bit after, is that usually they don't find the way out. So they'll say it, they'll even say, I sabotage myself, they'll use that language. But then there's no practical tips to follow up. How do you change this behavior? And I think that's why I became so passionate about this topic. And in my research and in the work that I've done with my patients, I've just noticed that people do this all the time, and then they kind of just brush it off, and then they do it again. So it becomes this pattern that overall will erode on their self-esteem and their ability to believe in themselves to do things. So how do you make sure you don't do it again? (laughs) Well, the first step is to understand where it comes from. And so I came up with an acronym called LIFE to help people remember the 
common factors a bit easier. So I believe that there's four common reasons why people self-sabotage, and some people may have just one of these reasons. Some people may have all four, but in general, everybody has at least one. And the first one is low or shaky self-esteem. So if you've had difficulties believing in yourself, and it doesn't have to be pervasive, you know, people have different realms of self-esteem. So maybe you have really good self-esteem when it comes to your athletic abilities, but not so much when it comes to your career. And so whatever area of life that you're having difficulties difficulties with your self-esteem and that's where you're apt to self-sabotage the most. So that's the first factor. I stands for internalized beliefs. So this is the second factor and this is stories that we've been told from childhood, watching our parents, perhaps if our parents were nervous Nellies, you start to adopt that idea for yourself. As an adult, always look before you leap, don't try anything that you haven't tried before. And over time, this also erodes on our ability to make positive change. F is for fear of the unknown. So this is a very common thing to human beings. We, we don't like the unknown, clearly. We want to be able to predict how our life is going to go and what's going to happen to us day to day. But if that fear of the unknown is too pervasive, then it becomes unhealthy because then you'll never step outside your comfort zone. And the last one is E. E is for excessive need for control. So excessive need for control comes into play for a lot of people who would define themselves as perfectionists, totally overachievers, type A people, they don't want to do anything that isn't within their control. And oftentimes, if you have a big goal, you're not going to be the only person that's involved in achieving that goal. And so just even that sense of not being able to have a sure footing will stop people who generally are great at going after things. I've always thought that people self-sabotage themselves because perhaps they really don't want what it is they're aiming for, that 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 so they they screw it up and go well see i can't that's yeah sorry <laughs> i think that's a great point and like that's very very common too and i i think a big part of this is that sometimes we make these goals and they're not even our goals you know they're goals of our friends they're goals of our family members they're things that other people put on bucket lists so that you think you should too and i think this is part of you know all of these motivation hacks a lot of self-improvement projects and books. We talk all the time about achieving goals, and I, and I understand that. But at the same time, if these goals are not rooted in your values, the things that you find that your life should stand for, what you want to be remembered for, if they're not rooted in values first, I believe people do self-sabotage because, like you said, maybe it's not even what they want. And when they look down the line, they're like, well, if I achieve this goal, I'm going to be living a life that's not even authentic to me or maybe a life I don't really want to live. And so then they don't actually pursue those things in a very steadfast way. Could it just be fear? Like if, if I do really well on this job interview and I get the job, my life will change and maybe I don't really want it to change. Absolutely. This idea of fear of change is huge for human beings overall and maybe for certain individuals. And I think sometimes people look too many steps ahead. You know, they think, okay, once I achieve this goal, then I have to do this next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, then it'll never end. I hear this oftentimes with career pursuits. I hear this often also with actually health habits. Like, for example, when somebody is trying to lose weight, then they think, well, once I achieve that weight, then I have to keep it up. And 
for my entire life, I'm going to have to eat healthy and goodbye to these foods that I can never eat again, which, by the way, is the wrong mentality. You should have some kind of moderation, but not just cut things out completely. But I think when people look down the line too much and they see the maintenance that's involved, maybe they don't want to do it. And, you know, that particular fear of change can really come into play when you think too far down and think about all the negative consequences um, and outcomes that could be associated with reaching your goal. Well, it's interesting you said that it, it tends to happen with things where you, you, you perhaps have not as much confidence in, right? Right, absolutely. And that's really common for people to second-guess themselves. I think right now a lot of people are talking about this idea of imposter syndrome, right? And I think it relates a little bit to that. You know, even if you've done a lot of things, you've, you've tried your best, you've actually worked for it, sometimes you still don't feel fully confident. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, just in my own life and knowing people that I know that, that yeah, there's that sense of, I, I really don't deserve this. I don't qualify for this. I, I'll never, I'll never do well at it. So why bother? Absolutely. And I think when I talk to people who feel this way, it's, it's interesting because they don't actually tell everybody that that's how they're feeling, right? They kind of project this person that has confidence that it's full of life and can do anything that they want. And then their inner thoughts are so negative. And I talk about this a lot with the people I've worked with, which is, it's so crazy how sometimes the negative thoughts that we tell ourselves, we would never say them out loud to another human being, you know, not even a therapist. It's because they're so mean. And yet they're the undercurrents of our everyday. If these negative thoughts are pervasive and they're repeated, your brain starts to ignore it. Because it thinks, oh, this is just old information, I know this already. But just because your brain ignores it consciously doesn't mean that it's not wreaking havoc in other ways. And I think that's what leads to people self-sabotaging, sometimes without knowing it. I'm speaking with Dr. Judy Ho. She is a triple board certified and licensed clinical and forensic psychologist and author of the book, Stop Self-Sabotage. So, Judy, do you think there's a difference between, and I guess this would apply to something like weight loss, there's a difference between sabotaging yourself and just, you know, giving in to momentary temptation. It's not like you're trying to derail your whole diet, but, you know, that donut looks, <laughs> it just looks so good that, that you, you give in to temptation, but there's no deep-seated sabotage going on. Well, I think it can be a combination of different things. And when there is what we call a weak moment, it just means that you were possibly very mindless about it. Um, so it means that perhaps you kind of had this flash of acknowledgement that this might not be a good thing to do, and you just did it anyway. And instead of sort of being mindful of that moment and saying, well, I have a craving for the snack, for example, but it'll pass. It'll pass if I just wait a few minutes. Let me just do something else to distract myself and come back. And research shows that 15 to 20 minutes is often enough for you to actually gauge, are you actually truly hungry or do you actually really want this or are you just doing it because of emotional eating or boredom? And so after that 15 to 20 minutes, people tend to make better decisions, but because they're not mindful in the moment, then they have sort of this lapse in judgment. But I absolutely think that willpower is a big deal. And so research also shows, for example, that people tend to snack and eat unhealthily towards the end of the night maybe after they've been drinking a little bit. And it all makes sense because willpower is not an infinite resource. It's a finite resource, just like when you exercise your body. Eventually, you're going to have to rest your body. You're going to have to take a break. Well, willpower does erode over the course of the day, especially if you've had a lot of different decisions that you've had to make in the day, if you've had other emotional or academic or career stresses, so that by the end of the day, 
it's much harder to say no. So knowing that you are predisposed to doing this, what's the step one, two, and three to when you see yourself starting to sabotage your your efforts, what do you do? Well, the first step is to recognize which of those life factors apply to you, because it's really important to know those undercurrents of what is really leading me to do this time and time again. And after that, I think it's time, you know, the next step is really to delve into your thought patterns. You know what? We have these automatic thoughts that kind of run on autopilot. And a lot of times they're very negative. And they're things that reinforce one or more of those life factors. So we need to sort of take those thoughts out into the light, be able to examine them and understand whether or not they actually even apply in this situation. Sometimes we hold on to negative thoughts from an earlier experience we've had in life, and it doesn't even apply now. And it's really about how is this thought really operating and do we need to somewhat either change the thought, if you can, if you can think about this thought as this is not a productive thought, how do I have a more productive one? Or it's really about maybe letting that thought just be a thought. And I think this is sort of a newer school of psychology that has gotten more attention lately, which is based on acceptance and commitment therapy. And this school of thought is all about, you know, sometimes we can't change our negative thoughts in the moment, but we can change our relationship to them. And just because we have a negative thought does not mean we have to act on it. It does not mean it's true, and it does not mean that it has to have any kind of formidable effect on our emotions and on our behaviors. And if you can let go of that and just think of your thoughts as mental events, because that's all they are, they're not who you are, they're not part of your personality, then we can deal with them easier. We can kind of ignore them and let them run in the, in the background without letting it actually affect our decisions that end up leading to self-sabotage. That seems hard to do. To, to, <laughs> that seems really hard to do to, to have that view, have that belief that those negative thoughts really are benign. Yes, and I think it's because, I mean, as human beings, language is just so important to us. It's important to our development. It's important to our communication and how we relate to one another. And social relations are just paramount for human beings. Recent research has shown that if we don't have good social relationships, we can actually die earlier. We can actually have heart disease. And so there's these physical manifestations of not being able to communicate well. But our reliance on language really is also at some points very artificial. And so I think some of the more practical ways to start making this shift, because as you said, it is very hard, is to very simply one technique that I use a lot is to talk about this as labeling a thought. So if you have a negative thought, like, I'll never be able to lose weight, um, adding just a small little phrase in front of it, I'm having the thought that I'm never going to be able to lose weight. And just notice how the power gets taken out a little bit of that original thought because you're labeling it as a thought and you're creating even a physical distance between you and that original thought that can wreak havoc on your healthy habits. I like that. That's a great idea because, as you say, it it kind of uh, pulls the power away from the thought and makes it just a thought, which is just a thought. Right, absolutely. And sometimes I'll even have my clients, you know, write it on a piece of paper. And so they'll write their negative thought first, and then I'll ask them to write to the left of that thought, I'm having the thought that. And then I have them stand up and I say, look at the paper and look at you. And you're already farther from the thought than you when you originally started, because now you have this bridge here, this little phrase. And so I try to make that physical connection because sometimes we think of thoughts, you know, again, as so intangible, they're in our heads, they can go on and on forever. And when you put it on the page, it feels like something that 
you can manipulate. And I try to remind people that anything that's physical in space has finite borders, right? Even the Grand Canyon starts and ends somewhere. And so do your thoughts. They don't have to go on forever and ever and wreak havoc to your emotional and behavioral life. In your work with people, where do you find self-sabotage showing up most in life? What are the situations? That's such a good question. So I find for a lot of successful people, people who have their careers together, people who have maybe even their healthy habits together, their exercise together, that they tend to self-sabotage the most in intimate romantic relationships. And I think it's because that's where things are the least controllable and they're the most vulnerable. So if anybody's had any kind of emotional trauma of any sort or has been rejected in a romantic relationship somewhere in life, that could be an easy slip for them. You know, it's easy just to tell themselves these are not the things I want, um, so they just never get into a serious relationship. Or they tell themselves, I do want a serious relationship. How come I can't get one? Yet they keep choosing these partners that either don't challenge them or bore them or partners that, you know, unfortunately sometimes might get into abusive types of behaviors including emotional and physical abuse. So I think that's one very common area. But I think a couple of other ones are procrastination, diet and exercise, and certainly pushing forward in their career. I find a lot of really well-meaning people who settle into a job and, and never try to aim any higher, and they just watch other people get promoted over them and watch other people have better jobs. And they tell themselves a narrative that, well, a job's a job, right? So you don't really have to like what you do. And And I try to say, you know, a job is a job, and sometimes you're going to have days where you don't love what you do, but you should absolutely at least 70 to 80% of the time love what you do because you spend so much time in your life doing it. What about accountability? It would seem to me that if, if somebody else is kind of keeping their eye on you, that you are less likely to fall victim to this. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is why... I want to take self-sabotage out of the shadows. I think that people are embarrassed by it and they hide from it and maybe there's a certain level of stigma there, especially if somebody feels like they're a little bit uh, living this imposter syndrome, they don't want to talk about it. But if you keep it all to yourself, it's much easier to keep doing those negative behaviors and sink into those patterns and keep feeling ashamed. So if you can tell at least one other person, have an accountability buddy, be able to discuss this openly and again, recognize it's universal. So there's nothing wrong with you if you're prone to falling into it from time to time, that hopefully that will help because the more we can talk about it openly and the more we can bring it to the surface, the more it's going to feel like a huge sense of cognitive dissonance when you do something against your best interest, right? So human beings are very much driven by cognitive dissonance. We don't want it. You know, that's a very uncomfortable place for us if we feel like our thoughts don't align or our thoughts and behaviors don't align. So I give this example of one of my friends who used to be a chain smoker, but then he started working in tobacco research and he quit eventually because it was just too much for him to hold that dissonance of I'm doing tobacco research and yet I smoke a pack a day. And so it's that idea that when you can talk to people about it, when you're living this outward life of going towards your goals and then you trip up, then that's much harder for your mind to handle. Your mind doesn't want it. So it's easier then to keep your mind and your behaviors on track with one another. It is, interest, it is interesting to me anyway how we, we all, and you've confirmed, that we all fall victim to this at, at some point in life. It, it serves us poorly, and yet it, it is so common. It is just it's, everybody does it. 
Everybody does it. And I think, you know, obviously we don't have to over-pathologize the problem, and that's a big part of what I've been trying to do when I talk to people about it is, hey, the best of us do it. And by the way, you're fighting biology and evolution here, so you're not going to win that battle. We're all going to do it sometime. But if it becomes a pattern that bothers you and you know it's getting in your way consistently, then it's really time to do something about it. And the good news is there are things we can do about it. So aside from changing your thoughts, understanding the life factors, it's also about replacing your unhealthy behaviors with healthy behaviors. So this idea of replacement behaviors comes from behavioral management theory and psychology. And it's all about um, substituting what we call a competing behavior in place of a bad habit. So when we talk about unhealthy snacking, that's a very common example of that. What is something that you can do when you get the urge to snack and you know you're not hungry, you know that you're nourished, and you know that you shouldn't do it? You know, what is something that will get in the way of you actually having that snack. And so sometimes people will say things like, well, I'll watch TV. I'm like, nope, that's not a competing behavior because that's the time when most people snack. <laughs> so what you have to do is do something that can actually get in the way of you picking up a snack. So whether that's taking a quick walk around the block, um, going on a really quick walk with your dog, or it's cleaning up a small area of your room, you know, it's something that actually gets in the way of you also being able to eat at the same time. Well, it's good to know that you know, it's, it's not just me, it's not just you, it's everybody. Everybody engages in self-sabotage to some degree or another, and, and it's good to know, too, that there are things you can do to, to fight it if that becomes a problem. Dr. Judy Ho has been my guest. She's a triple board certified and licensed clinical and forensic psychologist, and the name of her book is Stop Self-Sabotage. You'll find a link to her book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Judy. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me on, Mike. Really great. I imagine you have, as I have done, looked up into the night sky and wondered, what's it all about? The stars, the universe, it all looks so chaotic. But is it? Is it chaotic or is there some order, some rhyme and reason to all in the universe that we see? And if there is order to it all, what does that mean? Here to explain, perhaps as good as anyone, is Graham Farmello. Graham is a senior research fellow at the Science Museum in London and adjunct professor of physics at Northeastern University in Boston. And he is author of a book called The Universe Speaks in Numbers, How Modern Math Reveals Nature's Deepest Secrets. Hi, Graham. Thanks for coming on. And, and why don't you start by explaining what you mean by the universe speaks in numbers? What does that mean? Well, nature is, is speaking to us in stereo. Now, what I mean by that is that everybody knows pretty much that uh, we learn about nature from the results of experiments, uh, making observations. That's, that's the way we learn about how nature works. But we also learn about nature's order, the fundamental order at the heart of nature from mathematics. I mean, Einstein was the person who saw this extremely clearly. He pointed out three years before uh, he passed away, this was 1952, that the great miracle, as he called it, or the eternal mystery, is that there is a deep underlying order at the heart of nature. Now, it's that order that enables us to do science. It's because the universe is ordered that we can study it. And we have to hand a system that enables us to understand that order, and that system is mathematics. 
So what is the nature of that order that you just spoke of? What does it mean that the universe has an order? The first time that this was really set out with tremendous clarity was uh, Isaac Newton, who in uh, 1687 published his great book, perhaps the greatest book ever published in what we now call science, when he uh, set out the first system of studying nature in a mathematical way. And at the heart of that was the formula that gives the gravitational force between two masses. It's called Newton's inverse square law. That's a complicated sounding thing, but it's actually very simple. It says if you have two masses, then there is a simple mathematical formula you can write on the palm of your hand that tells you what the force is, the gravity force between those, uh, uh, those masses. And that formula describes everything from an apple falling uh, from a tree in his garden or a, uh, a pencil falling from your hand uh, to the floor right through to the moon going around the earth, the planets going around the sun and the whole shape of the cosmos. That was one of the greatest unifying insights in the history of, uh, of science. And it shows that there is an un- underlying order that you can summarize in terms of a simple mathematical formula. And so what is that formula? Oh, it's uh, the the gravitational force. You multiply the two masses. You divide it by the square of the distance. That's it. That's the formula that is in every every basic science textbook, right? And that gives a mathematical expression to the uh, the order that we see in uh, around us in terms of the gravitational force. And is there any sense as to what that formula is explaining? What that why that formula works so well and why these everything has this relationship to everything else? The way Newton looked at it, the, 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 you know, the, the, the towering mind that began this, his job was, uh, was not to explain where the origin of these things, but to describe, as he would put it, uh, God's creation. That's what he saw. He saw himself as a, a natural philosopher whose job was to understand God's creation of the universe. Uh, and by that formula that I just described there, that uh, enabled him to describe everything from motion on the planet Earth through to the uh, motion of satellites in outer space, the motion of the moon, the tides, and, and, and what have you. Uh, he couldn't explain why there is that attraction, but he nonetheless descri- uh, put, wrote down a formula that, uh, that linked together all those observations. And that, that's the expression of a basic order at the heart of the universe. If this has been around since Newton, yeah. then isn't this all pretty much in stone and we all agree and now we can get on with our lives or not? Oh, no, uh, because uh, gravity is, is uh, only one of several forces that are at the heart of nature. I mean, uh, one that Newton knew about, but he, he did not know the mathematical description of it is electricity and magnetism. Now, that is responsible ultimately for the, the senses, uh, all the human senses. Uh, and I mean, we, we pick it up when we get our clothes out of the dry cleaner, we get the electric shock, we, we, we sense the electrical force in action there. The electrical force holds together the particles inside atoms. But we didn't know what formulae uh, describe those forces, electrical and magnetic forces. The correct theory, mathematical theory of that, 
that uh, was discovered in the 1860s by the great Scottish thinker James Clark Maxwell. And that, again, was one of the really great human achievements of the 19th century. The American theoretician said it was the great achievement of the 19th century because so much of our modern world is based on electricity and magnetism from our, our cell phones and our lighting systems and our communication systems are based on electricity and magnetism, basically. And it was Maxwell who discovered a few equations that describe all the phenomena of electricity and magnetism. Again, what that does is it gives a mathematical expression to the basic order at the heart of the universe. And so why is this important? Why it, it, This seems like textbook stuff that's been in the textbooks for a long time. So why are we talking about it today and why should I care? Uh, let's, let's, let's be clear. This is important because it's the miracle that makes our uh, comprehension of the universe uh, possible. That's exactly what Einstein said. His job, the supreme task of the physicist, as Einstein put it, is to understand, find the most basic laws from which we can deduce why, uh, why the universe is the way it is. That's what the job of the physicist is fundamentally. It's to find those laws and to, uh, and, and to give expression to that order and to make predictions that enable uh, uh, technology and make our, under uh, our understanding of the universe around us clear. So you talked in the beginning of this conversation about people who experiment to try to figure out why the world works the way it works. What are these experimenters experimenting? What is it, what, what is it they do? What experimenters do is to study phenomena in the universe, right? They do experiments on the, uh, the, the world around us. Now, they measure things like mass, they measure speed, they measure uh, uh, forces and what have you. Now, that on its own and their, their identification of phenomena in nature, you know, the, the, you know, observations of new particles and new phenomena that have never been seen by human beings before, right? That's one thing, but... As, as Einstein stressed so, so often, what we really need is to understand the pattern of, between those observations. Why are they all part of one seamless whole? And that's what the fundamental aim of uh, a physicist is, to give a unified description of the whole of nature at a fundamental level. It would be having a simple set of formulae on which everything around us is based. And they, the, the in, what we're really aiming for is a mathematical set of laws that are in perfect agreement with experiment. That's what we we're after. And are we anywhere close? Well, we've done fantastically. If, I mean, if Newton could come back today and see where we were, I, I'm pretty confident he'd be utterly astonished. For, for a start, he'd see that we had these laws of, of electricity and magnetism, but also atoms, which were a matter of controversy at that time. We not only know they exist, we know the detailed mathematical laws that govern uh, the, uh, the inner structure of atoms. Even better than that, we have a system now uh, in uh, uh, the best candidate we've got is called string theory, whereby we can understand all those forces are under one framework. Now, that is a tremendously exciting intellectual uh, uh, achievement. It's certainly not, the end, uh, not concluded. There's a lot of work to do to understand that theory and to check it thoroughly against experiment. But that would be seen by someone like Newton if he would just sort of walk in and look at the, the state of science now. He would be astonished at what has been achieved by scientists in the few, in, in 300 odd years uh, since he published his great work. So one thing I, I guess I don't really understand is how could Newton 
mm-hmm. way way back when he was alive. Come yeah. up with this for you can't just make up a formula. You have yes, right? you can. <laughs> You can. That's exactly the magic of the great creative scientists, in particular the great creative uh, physicists. Basically, put, put simply, they have to guess the right formula that fits nature. That's the point. Right. And he and, and actually he wasn't the only person to come up with that, that, that formula. He applied it brilliantly to explain the motion of the planets around the sun, the, the tides and goodness knows what else. He, 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 so he used that formula brilliantly. But what people after that did was they actually guessed the right formulae. And it's a very, very difficult thing to do. That's why we celebrate, uh, and rightly so in my view, people who have the brilliance to actually come up with a brand new law of nature. And the most famous one in the past uh, century was, uh, was Albert Einstein. And in 1915, he came up with a new law of gravity, the, the, uh, Einstein's law of gravity, uh, which uh, is, uh, we, we uh, now believe is the best account of, uh, of, of the gravitational force and, uh, and indeed cosmology, the, the, the way in which the universe develops and the way it is now. He came up with that in his head. It took him about eight years to do, eight years of incredibly hard work, working with mathematics and experimental results to guess the right mathematical formula, which again, I might say, you can write on the palm of your hand. Quite an incredible achievement. Those equations that explain the order of the universe that you've described, though, they they explain some of the order, but there's a lot about the order of the universe we don't know, right? Oh, there's tons we don't know. The amazing thing about science is the more we understand, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. Um, As I said, we have a candidate theory uh, now uh, of all the interactions that can be put under one roof, so to speak, under the umbrella of one framework, which is called uh, string theory. Um, But that is certainly not a final theory. We're still working with it, trying to understand it. But But the great prize is to have a unified understanding of all those fundamental forces. And that a thousand or so of the smartest people alive are working on that subject now. And it's an extremely challenging thing to do. And the reason is that the most natural place to test that theory is at extremely high energies right at the beginning of the universe. And they're very, very difficult to access. What are the what are some of the things or one of the things that's stumping science? What what is the one or two things that like God? I wish we could figure this out, but nobody well, can. Yeah, there's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, a, a classic one, an absolutely classic one, concerns black holes. Now these uh, these are objects, if you can call it that, cosmic objects, uh, which are so dense with matter uh, that light and matter can't escape from it. At least that was the initial conception. Um, now, th- these things are exotic. They made the news this year because there was the first image of a black hole published, uh, it made the front pages of all the newspapers and websites and what have you. Right? Now, the, uh, many people have worked on that subject. The first thing to say is that the existence of those objects right, emerges from Einstein's theory of gravity. Now, that, in a sense, is quite remarkable. Out of that mathematical theory comes the prediction that those objects exist, and sure enough, we see them in outer space. That, I submit to you, is a, is a miracle, or, or if not a miracle, absolutely amazing, right? Now, we still don't understand exactly what happens when matter is swallowed up by a black hole. And the reason is that scientists find it, well, physicists find it extremely difficult to combine uh, our, our studies of gravity, 
which are, as I said, best symbolized by Einstein's theory, and the laws called quantum mechanics, which describe matter at the smallest level. This is atom by atom, when, you know, when you're talking about the tiniest particles of which that we're all made up of. Now, black holes is the best place, the cleanest place to test the conflict between quantum mechanics and uh, and Einstein's theory of gravity. It is, as one physicist along my corridor here, Douglas Stanford, put it brilliantly, it's the ground zero of the war between gravity and quantum mechanics. In other words, those two areas are very, very difficult to, uh, to uh, reconcile, and it's in black holes that we think we will, uh, we will understand how to do it. But it's not understood yet, and, uh, and people right now at the, at the String Theory Conference in Brussels are still working on this problem, and it has, has taken years uh, of, of work to, to, to make progress on, but it's still not understood. I remember when that uh, photograph of the black hole showed up, yep. and, and I remember in, <laughs> in my high school physics hearing that mm. light can't escape a black hole, so how could we possibly see it? Yeah, well, that's a, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, and, and indeed, that is what people thought for many years. But you can look at the environment around a black hole, Right? And you can see evidence for matter in its locality, so to speak. And that's what those experimenters quite brilliantly did this year. And it was the first time. And I want to say something here that shows that how remarkable our human understanding is on this. Physicists have been exploring black holes now for, uh, for, for many, many years. The modern understanding began in, in 1939. The subject really took off in the 60s and 70s with Stephen Hawking, one of, the, one of the pioneers. Now, those black holes were being studied inside theoreticians' heads, even before astronomers had seen them. When, as you said, we only saw our first clean image for it earlier this year. Right? And yet physicists are, are able to use mathematical equations to study what is going on in the, in the environment of a black hole. So it demonstrates the enormous power of mathematics and our, our basic theories of nature. I understand that the, all of these theories and formulas help to explain the universe, but do we really know what the universe is? And I mean, it seems like so much of it we don't know, so how can you possibly explain what you don't know? What we know about it is uh, enters through our senses uh, and, and is the result of observations that we make on it. The basic job of the physicists, physicists, physicists today are not particularly philosophical people. What they want to do is to, is to say that we, our job is to explain all the data that are taken on experiments on the universe. Every observation that an astronomer or a physicist makes, it is the physicist's job to, to, uh, to explain those observations in terms of mathematical formulae. And of course, there's tens of thousands, millions of people doing these observations on the, uh, on the outer galaxies and constellations and on, on here on planet Earth in every laboratory, coming up with millions of papers that tell us in detail about what is going on in, in the universe with very increasingly accurate experiments. And it's the job of the theoretician to use mathematical uh, laws to explain those things, to understand them. It goes back to that point about the order, that uh, the, the great miracle, as Einstein put it, is that the universe is ordered. It's not just a heap of chaos, you know, underneath all the tumult 
of the planet Earth and, and uh, uh, the, all the violence of quasar explosions or what have you are simple laws, a relatively small number of them. And it, it seems amazing to me that, that through the assemblies of atoms that human beings are, that we can divine and understand that order in the simple language of mathematics. Well, I, I find this so interesting, and I wish I had more of a science and math brain that I do. Those were not my, my best subjects in school. But this is really, really interesting and really helps explain the universe. Graham Farmello has been my guest. He's a senior research fellow at the Science Museum in London and adjunct professor of physics at Northeastern University in Boston. His book is called The Universe Speaks in Numbers. How Modern Math Reveals Nature's Deepest Secrets. And you will find a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks so much, Graham. Appreciate your time. Oh, I appreciate yours too. Thank you so much. If you would like to have better skin, improve your sex drive, and live longer, head to the ocean. Swimming in seawater can do all of that and more. If you don't have an ocean handy, river and lake swimming have similar benefits. Studies have found that those who swim in cool or cold bodies of water have better bodies because of it. Cool water immersion releases adrenaline, it improves your circulation, and it gives the immune system a boost. If that cool water is salty, it's like a saline rinse for your body that can do wonders for your skin and sinuses. Mineral-rich seawater has healing properties that can help relieve symptoms of arthritis, psoriasis, and even depression. And that is something you should know. If you like this podcast and wonder, gee, what can I do to support it? It couldn't be easier. The best thing you could do to support this podcast is to tell someone else about it and ask them to listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.